Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to begin in verse 24 of Acts chapter 24 and read through the 12th verse of chapter 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned, and as he reasoned about the righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, Not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many of the serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the Jews, the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Three things I would like to look at. There's a lot here. But three things I would like to look at this morning. We need to be aware of ever-present corruption. We need to be conscious of providential authority and even providential consequences. And we need to be alert for gospel opportunities. We'll look at these more closely as we dig in. Let's pray for the blessing of the reading of God's word. Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word and its truth and the lessons there that give us wisdom for life and for obedience to you. 
challenge our hearts this morning. As we see what is here before us, that we may glorify you with our loves, with our love, and that we may be that we may be filled with your love. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. There's a very old story about a Louisiana farmer. A very large piece of land, a very very profitable profitable farmer, but there was one part of his land that he had let left to woods and fruit trees, and in the middle of that was a large pond where he had set up some picnic tables and kept it kept, and kept it for not only his family, but some of his neighboring farmers who would come and use it. They would go fishing, some of them would go swimming, and just some of them would just use it for family time. He shared that piece of his property with him. And one day this farmer was wanted to go and check it to see if there was any litter left behind or if there's anything that needed to be repaired or, or looked after. And he grabbed a big five-gallon pail on his way out to this pond, thought he might pick some fruit from his trees on the way back. And he's walked through the trees and came into the clearing where the pond was and the picnic ground was. He heard some laughter. Some young ladies were singing in the pond. He didn't recognize them, and he announced himself. And they, all of them got alarmed, started swimming to the other side of the pond. And they called back to him, Mister, we're not going to come out until you leave. And the farmer said, I didn't come here to run you off. I just came here to feed the alligator. A cute little story, but it illustrates a point. Illustrates a point. Christians enjoy the grace of God. We delight in the fellowship that we find in Christ Jesus, or at least we should. But we're not very aware of the danger around us. And that's what we need to be aware of. We look at the book of Acts and study the life of Paul, and we see how he dealt with the grace of the Lord Jesus, faithfully preaching it and proclaiming it, and still dealing with the danger around him. 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is good as long as God's mighty hand is there near us, keeping us safe, keeping us protected, being our strength, our stronghold. That's a wonderful thing, and we enjoy that thought. But sometimes that gets a little twisted. We enjoy too much of that promise, and we, oh, wow, look at this. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. When that gets twisted in the Christian's heart and thinking, and tragically it gets twisted coming from some pulpits in our land. Verse 
oh boy, I get to be exalted by God. I'm going to have my best life now. We want to enjoy the grace of the Lord too much, and we aren't very aware of the dangers that prevail around us. Verse 7of 1 Peter 5, casting all your care and your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's wonderful. That is a promise. But it also says at the very next verse, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Those are imperatives. These are things we must do. It's wonderful that we can trust him and we know that he is keeping us safe and protected, but we need to also be vigilant. Be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom may, he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I know that some people, some preachers who have, and there's nothing wrong with it, some preachers who have preached on this text have focused the lesson on personal piety. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, someone to devour, saying the Lord is, or excuse me, the devil is after you. I struggle with that a little bit because I don't know that any of us are so important that the devil will personally come after us. He knows that we are too entrapped, we are too bound to our own weaknesses, our own lusts, our own desires, our own sins. All he has to do is blow a suggestion our way and we've stumbled. Thankfully, we have the Lord if we are in him. We have his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And he is there to pick us up and to sustain us. But I doubt that there are very many people on this earth alive today who have the stamina, the spiritual wherewithal to resist a personal attack from Lucifer himself. So my understanding of this text in 1 Peter 5, and I promise I'll get to Acts pretty soon, is that this devil, like a roaring lion, is moving through this world, prowling around, and he is devouring masses. He is influencing peoples, not just individuals. And if you look at what we see in this world today, you can understand, yeah, he, he's really got his hand on political forces, on peoples, on groups, on nations, on celebrities. Tooth and talon. He is in control of them. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
We are meant to be salt and light in this world. We are supposed to be pushing back against the corruption of this world. We're supposed to be pushing back against the evil that Satan brings to this world. That is our call as a Christian. It's not to best be delightfully happy in Jesus. It's to be actively professing his word and his truth. Christians love enjoying the grace of God, but they seem to be so very shy about proclaiming it and so very shy about proclaiming it faithfully. We need to be very aware of the ever-present corruption in this world. Our first point, Paul's ministry, according to the book of Acts, constantly met with a great deal of resistance, mostly from the Jewish nation, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin. Why was that? Quite frankly, Paul preached Christ crucified and risen again. He even wrote the church at Corinth saying, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching the gospel message is power and wisdom of the one true God who is eternal. And that's the message we should faithfully preach. But there is a deeper reason the Jews resisted Paul's preaching. There is a sinister reason that the Jews resisted Paul's preaching. And we can look at James 1.14 and 15. You're very familiar with this, I know. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And again, you've probably heard messages and shared lessons about the personal effect upon sin, of sin in your life. That if it's left in your life, It brings a spiritual death. It brings spiritual destruction. But if we take this in a broader sense, it gives us an idea that there is something more sinister at play. There is nothing worse than, a rid, than an organized group of unbelievers. There's nothing worse than an organized group of religiosity. And that's what Israel had become. They had been so fine-tuned into their system of works that they weren't going to accept any grace or mercy from the Lord Jesus. They wanted that squashed. They wanted that shut down. They wanted that hushed. Why, were the, why was that so? The desire, when it was conceived, gave birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And not only in the hearts and minds of individuals from one generation to the next, it spread throughout the whole nation. Israel's tolerance of corruption began with the toleration of sin at the personal level, and it eventually led 
to the toleration of sin and the idolatry at the national level? And it consequently led, consequently led to their fall as a nation. Why were they ruled by the Romans? You know, we look at the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, and we, it's almost like we forget. Why were they ruled by the Romans? The Israelites were supposed to be the chosen people of God. They were supposed to be the pinnacle of the nations of the world. Quite frankly, it's because they compromised with and tolerated sin, and they refused to repent. Jeremiah, I can go from one prophet to the next. Just let me share a couple. Jeremiah 9, beginning at verse 12. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law and I, that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Now, why were they ruled by the Romans? Because they became a sinful nation and they would not repent. And God raised up one nation after another. Started with Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and finally Rome. So this had been going on for over 400 years and still no repentance. Hosea also wrote about this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, there is lying, there is murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. Also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let no, none accuse for with you is my contention. O priest, you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with, with you by night. So he's laying the responsibility, the primary responsibility of Israel's sin to the priests and the preachers. The men who were supposed to spiritually lead Israel failed, and the nation failed afterwards. 
This is why Rome had conquered and ruled Israel. So be aware of ever-present corruption, the corruption of sin. It's personal. It's also social. It can also become national. Quite frankly, it has even become denominational. Many Christians who claim to know Christ, this is a thought I've been struggling with lately. I'm going to, this is a sidebar. A couple of weeks ago, I was out walking my dog, and I had earphones in, listening to the radio. And they were talking about, I don't even remember, some athlete, well-known athlete, football player, was given a jersey of a very, of a professional football team, and then he was on television. I'm trying to remember the details. It was really absurd what they tried to do. He was on television wearing that jersey, just having an interview, just happened to have that on. And the football team that represented, that was represented by that jersey tried to sue him for copyright infringement. He wasn't supposed to have that on television with him. Like he wasn't advertising for them by wearing it. it, it he was, it. Back in the days when I used to be a printer, one of the biggest, biggest accounts our company had was for Coca-Cola Bottling Company of North Carolina. And they brought in a great big skid load of printer's ink. Coca-Cola Red. Anytime we wanted to print anything for Coca-Cola, that's the printer's ink. It would, that, their red is copyrighted. If they catch you using their special formula of red, you can be sued for copyright infringement. Pepsi-Cola is the same way. Now let me try and bring the sidebar to an end by saying that I wish we could copyright the word Christian. I wish we knew and understood what Christianity truly meant in such a way that this person says they're Christian, but they're not this kind of Christian. They're phony, they're false, they're fake. Copyright infringement. I wish we could do that. Because we see in this day and this time that this ever-present corruption, it can be personal, it can be national, it can be social, it can even be denominational. We see a lot of denominations claiming to be Christian, but they're nowhere near it. They have become idolatrous, they have been cor become corrupt, they have become sinful, and they do not repent. They even encourage sinful behavior. We need to be aware of ever-present corruption. The Apostle Paul was aware of it because he was always fighting against it, boldly proclaiming the gospel of truth. That's why we also need to be very conscious of providential authority. God, is an authority, God and his authority was judging Israel through the political power of Rome.
They were supposed to respect the authority over them, but Rome was not the final authority. Give me a moment or two in a minute, and I'll explain that. We, are also, we also need to be aware that while earthly authority or political authority has its place in God's purpose, it is not our final authority. We are not to give it ultimately ultimate respect. Looking at Acts chapter 25 and 24, we see an account where Felix, where Paul is standing before Felix, and then Chapter 25 talks about Festus coming in and taking Felix's place. Why is that important? What's so special about that? We kind of miss it if we don't look closely at the text, and we also kind of miss it if we don't really understand what God does with names in some of these accounts he gives us in the Bible. Felix, as we remember from one of our previous lessons, he was one under Roman authority. He was the one who brought the Roman authority to Caesarea, to the people of Israel. But he was also known as someone who was cruel, brutal, greedy, and immoral. I think the Holy Spirit was working working in him through the Apostle Paul's message because he seemed to be patient. He kept him for two years, kept Paul in prison for two years without any punishment. He understood Paul was a Roman citizen, but he, he also wanted Paul to bribe him. Give me some money, I might let you go. But the name Felix, this one who was cruel and greedy and moral, the name Felix means happy, luckily, lucky, and, uh, and successful. Kind of ironic. And since we are to understand that by two or three witnesses, let every matter be, be established, God sends by his providence, providential authority, sends another one in there by the name of Festus. Felix is removed Portius Festus comes in. Festus desired peace with the Jews. He wanted to do them a favor instead of granting true justice for Paul. You've broken no law. Go. You're free. No, I want to do something for the Jews. I want to keep them happy because I know how mad they can get. Festus' name you could probably guess, means festival or holiday. Rome is in authority over Israel, but God is teaching us, don't take them too seriously. Here was a man who was important. He was immoral, yet his name meant happy. Here is another man who was politically corrupt. He would he didn't care about justice. He wanted to just keep everybody happy. But his name was Holiday. If you remember the accounts in the Old Testament where God also used the names of people to teach us a lesson, you remember when Joshua led Israel across the Jordan and they conquered the city of Jericho. 
And they were told to burn the city, do not take any spoil from the city, that it was supposed to be brought to total destruction. But there was one man by the name of Achan who saw something shiny, something valuable, and he desired it, and he took it and hid it. And then the people of Israel went on to the small town of Ai. And they were defeated at Ai. And God told them that someone has sinned in your camp. God led them to Achan. Achan's name means trouble. You remember the story of the judges. There were many stories in Judges, particularly the one in chapter 4 where Deborah summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men and mount to Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun. Very controversial time during, during Israel's history they were being overwhelmed by surrounding tribes of unbelievers, surrounding tribes of Canaanites. And God raised up a female prophetess. That's a discussion for another day. But she sends word to Barak. God's already told me that he called you. Why have you not responded? Barak was very slow to respond, yet Barak's name literally meant lightning. When he did respond, he said, I'll not go to war, Deborah, unless you go with me. So we see event, event after event in the Old Testament where God uses the meaning of names of some people to teach us lessons about his grace, and about our sin. I think God is using the names of Felix, Happy, and Festus, Holiday, to teach us that we are not supposed to give final authority to the political forces that are over us. We need to be very aware of the present corruption. We need to be conscious of providential authority and also the consequences. God uses providential authority to bless and to curse. God uses providential authority to protect and the harm. In the case of our text, Rome's boot had been on the neck of Israel for nearly 200 years. But they failed to repent. That's how stubborn they were. The oppression remained. Be aware of ever-present corruption. Be conscious of providential authority. And be alert for gospel opportunities. That's essentially what Paul had done. And that's what we should do. We can enjoy the grace of Jesus. We can delight in fellowship with one another. But we also need to be very aware of the gators in the water. This is a dangerous world. And we need to be resisting it. 
we need to be pushing back. Philippians 1.27, we always take these very personally, but they mean so much more, and they should be applied beyond our personal life. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your faithful affairs, and that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When do we ever strive together for the faith of the gospel? Taking the faithful message that is preached and taught and proclaiming it faithfully to our communities, to our political leaders, to our towns, to our cities, to our school boards. A.W. Pink once wrote, the great work of the pulpit is to press the authoritative claims of the creator and judge of all the earth to show how short we have come of meeting God's just requirements to announce his imperative demand of repentance. It requires a workman and not a lazy man, a student and not a slothful one who studies to show himself approved unto God and not one who seeks the applause and the shekels of men. There are too many men standing in the pulpits who are seeking money and fame. They need to be faithful to the word, and the people of God need to be faithful to the word. A major part of the good news of the gospel is revealing the bad news. Part of the gospel is to preach and teach the condition of the sinful heart. It is a heart without hope. It is a heart, it is, it is a lost heart. It is a doomed heart. People aren't going to like that message. They usually don't. They don't like to be reminded of their sin. I'm not really that bad. You're lost. You need Christ. And you may receive him by faith. Turn from your sin. That is a wonderful message. The Apostle Paul was not afraid to proclaim it. Paul was ready to die for it. And verse 11 said, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. He was bold and courageous to share the word of God. So should we be. I know some men who are faithful to go out on the streets. The old-timey street preacher standing on the street corner proclaiming the gospel. Some of them have been spat upon. Some of them have been slapped and kicked, made fun of. But they keep on preaching. People don't like to hear their message, but they continue to preach. Patiently. Turning the other cheek.
You can't mention Jesus in the classroom, but doors are opening to the drag queens. Preach and teach the condition of the sinful heart. It is a heart and life without hope. It is lost and doomed. It is a heart that needs Christ. People are not going to like that message. But in Christ there is salvation. We can enjoy the grace we find in Christ. We are free and encouraged by the fellowship that we experience within the church. But there is also danger present. We need to be very aware John Calvin said this, but he draws it from Scripture. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Is God judging America? America is not the church. But the compromised church certainly is being judged. And those who are faithful and true are feeling the anxiety and the discomfort and the fear. People do not like the message, but we are called. We are commanded to complain, to, com to proclaim it. When we look at the nation's history for the last 50 years, Abortion has taken the lives of 70 million, nearly 70 million. In the last 20 years, we've seen the rise of critical race theory, which is a cultural response of Marxism, communism. We've seen the awareness of human trafficking. We've seen LGBTQ agenda pushed upon our children through Children's shows like Blue's Clues, Sesame Street, Peppa Pig, Disney, Nickelodeon. They're desensitizing and indoctrinating our children to accept sinful behavior as okay. And they're censoring our speech. They're trying to do their best to shut up our truth, God's truth, God's gospel. There's religious and political discrimination on our college campuses. And every effort is being made to keep God out of schools altogether. How are we any different than the compromised and unbelieving people of Israel in Paul's day as a nation I'm not talking about as a little congregation as a nation how are we any different we can delight and rejoice in the grace of Christ but there are gators in the water there's danger around be alert for gospel opportunities I'll close with two references, from one from Hebrews and one from Ephesians. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 14, just three quick verses. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Be aware of the ever-present corruption, personally, socially, politically, denominationally. Be conscious of providential authority, He's going to chastise those who are disobedient and those who are unfaithful. He's going to correct. But always, always be alert for gospel opportunities. As we share the gospel, we are pushing back against the darkness, sharing his light and his grace and his mercy. Let us be faithful there. Christ, we are thankful for your word and its truth, and we pray this day that you may speak to our hearts. Help us to be faithful in all things, For it is in Christ we pray. Amen. As we take this time to continue worship through tithes and offerings, please give faithfully to the Lord. He has been faithful to us and has blessed us tremendously, provided for the needs of this little congregation, and we We want to express our gratitude to him through tithes and offerings this morning. Would the ushers please come? Please stand for the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, we're thankful for your word and his truth and his power, and we're thankful for your faithfulness to us. We rejoice to see how you bless those providentially who are faithful to you, how you care for each one of your children. And we ask, Lord, this day that we may give you praise with our offerings. Receive these as expressions of joy and gladness from our hearts, for we do love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. (coughs) (coughs) Number 585. Take my life and let it be. Let's sing verses 1 and 4. Just two verses. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Ceaseless praise, let them flow with ceaseless praise. Take my silver and 